Please remain standing for the reading of the word. This is Isaiah 8, 20 through 9, 2. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all may be seated. If you would, though, uh, as you're being set, though, don't uh, close the copy of Scripture, because that's where we're going to be for the majority of this morning. I want to ask you a question this morning, and uh, it's maybe a strange one. It's maybe even something that might strike you as a little odd. I- I'm wondering if you've ever met a person that you strongly suspected might have been an angel. I feel like I've lost some people, even among, like, uh, just uh, asking that question. It's like, Chris has lost his mind. Maybe, uh, maybe he's not doing okay. That's not the primary question that we're going to deal with this morning. But Hebrews 13 does tell us that uh, by practicing hospitality, some have actually entertained angels without knowing it. I believe that the word of the Lord is real and that it is true. Uh, that's actually happened. But uh, what I'm really asking you is, have you ever met anybody that just uh, has, is so filled with the fruit of the Spirit is so sanctified, uh, being made more like Jesus, that they just exude uh, something that is other, something that is holy, something that is set apart. Have you ever met a person like that? Maybe you have even that person in your mind. If I have ever met that person, it's a man named Wayne Huff. Wayne Huff uh, was a man who, uh, or is a man, I haven't seen him in years, but uh, he was a Bible translator and a missionary in Guatemala. And and not like Guatemala City, Guatemala, he was out, uh, I mean, trying to reach and trying to uh, literally translate uh, the New Testament of God's Word into like ancient Aztecian kind of uh, amalgamated languages. That's who this man was. But Sawyer and I got uh, the chance, even before we were married, to go on a few missions trips and go to a city that you literally had to go out of Guatemala City. You had to go uh, to the, I I think, the highest elevation lake in the world. It was gorgeous and beautiful. And then take a trip across the lake to get to a place that was pretty remote, named Santiago. Really remote. But then we would go outside of that city in the places that we were serving. And while we were on this mission trip, uh, coincidentally, is the place that I decided, I'm going to marry this woman, talking about Sawyer. 
Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry Sawyer. She was so beautiful to me uh, inside and out, I decided I'm going to marry her. But we had we'd been together at that time for about three years, and what we had done before going on this trip was we had pulled a little bit of our money together. And it wasn't much, but it was a lot to us. And we had just said, we're going to find a need, and we're going to give this to that need. That's what we want to do while we were there. And so what we saw was a great need for like construction stuff, because we were helping build this widow's colony that was literally on the edge of civilization. That's going to matter here in just a second. It's literally on the edge of civilization. And uh, they were building a church amidst this widow colony. And they had like the worst tools on earth to do it. And so Sawyer and I went to uh, Wayne Huff and we just said, hey, it's not much, but we want to take this amount of money and we want to buy new wheelbarrows, tools, stuff like that. He said, that's great and very cute. Uh, you're amazing. Uh, that's not what we need. The wheelbarrows are fine, even though they don't have like wheels. What we really need is electrical cord. I was like, right? That's not what I thought you needed, but uh, I'm, I'm teachable. He's like, here, copper is so expensive that buying electrical cord is like unimaginably like difficult to come by. And so we literally went to a local hardware store and got like a huge coil And um, he took Sawyer and I aside, and he told us this story. He said, listen, this widow's colony is on the edge of civilization. There's no electricity there. It's, It's coming from the town. But here's what you need to know about this widow's colony. They've been expecting the electricity for a really long time, but they don't talk about it the way that you and I talk about it. When it gets dark here, it gets dark. It gets very dark. It's a dark place. And what you've done is you've purchased the electrical cord uh, to uh, bring electricity into the midst of this widow's colony. He said, the way that they talk about it is not about electricity, it's about light. And even to this day, like, I get a little choked up thinking about it, because this man that was just so redeemed says, the way that they're talking about it is they, they see the electricity coming nearer and nearer, and this is going to help make it to where we can bring light, and they go, the light is coming, the light is coming, the light is coming. They were so on the edge of civilization that it was almost as if they were being unseen. There was no light to see this little widow's colony, but they desperately wanted to be seen. The light is coming. That's what Wayne Huff said to us, and we, of course, were like bawling. It was just this really affecting thing that even now, years and years later, I think about those words. They ring in my head, the light is coming, the light is coming. And that's what uh, Isaiah is saying to us this morning. He's saying... The light is coming. Amidst the darkness of the world, the light is coming. You might remember last week we dealt a lot with the darkness. We've got to start there this week. That's why we're starting in verse 20, uh, which you might remember from last week. You might think, why are we going back there? It's because of that word dawn. It says, to the teaching and testimony, if they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. There is no light there. That's what it's saying. And So what we find is, is that Isaiah is telling us Isaiah is telling us that the light of Emmanuel is a redeeming dawn. That's what he's saying. The light of Emmanuel is a redeeming dawn for those who are in darkness. The light of Emmanuel is a redeeming dawn. What what does that mean? What are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about is not just what's happening here in Isaiah, it's what always happens. So uh, a lot of times I try to give context for where we've been in previous weeks for the sermon. In order to get the context for this sermon, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Why is that? It's because God had a son. God had a son in, 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 in Genesis chapter 2. He had a son, and his name was Adam. You're going like, really? We're going to go all the way back to Adam. That's exactly where we're going to go. Because God had a son named Adam. 
And what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is that that son was placed in the midst of this garden. He was supposed to cultivate it and exercise some amount of responsibility over it. When God uh, created Adam, he said, you look like me. You look like me. I'm going to give you my image. I'm going to give you consciousness. I'm going to give you a, a soul and a spirit for you to have. And I'm going to place you in this place. And I'm going to allow you to and command you to cultivate it there. That's what Adam was supposed to be doing. And so as he was doing that, he was exercising this responsibility, this dominion that God had given him. He was placed in this uh, garden to cultivate and exercise his responsibility over it. And everything was good except for one thing, and that was that he was alone. And so God made a helper for him. He, he was alone, and that was no good, and God said, hey, I see that you're alone. Uh, I'm not going to create another being out of the dust of the ground. I'm not going to create her out of the bottom of your feet so that you might tread on her or the top of your head so that she might be head over you. I'm going to take a rib, and I'm going to fashion for you this bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, this woman. She's going to be alongside of you. And what we see in that is like this really amazing truth that God made man. He had the son, but he also made a daughter, and she was distinct from Adam. She was beautiful. But now Adam is responsible times two. He's not just responsible to cultivate the garden and name all the animals and exercise some amount of responsibility there. He also has this woman, this beautiful treasure that God has given him, and he has some amount of responsibility for her to care for her, to love her, to lead out in that love. He's supposed to be exercising some amount of responsibility, loving responsibility for this woman. And it's beautiful and it's amazing and everything was good. But then something happened. God told the two of them, do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Why? Because you'll die. And then there was a deceiver that came to them. So God's son and daughter had a deceiver, a tempter that came and said, did God really say that? Did God really say that you will surely die? You will not surely die. You won't die immediately. And here's the question that I've got for you this morning. Maybe you know the answer to it. It's, it's who did Satan tempt? Who did Satan tempt? Now, any grade yard boy talks about it in this way. Well, I don't understand why we have to, Eve was the one that ate the apple. and Nonsense. It's nonsense because who was responsible? Who was responsible in this situation? The moment that that snake uh, lifted his head, opened his mouth to speak words of deceit, who was responsible? We even see in verse 6, it, it, it says who is responsible, I think. It says, she gave also some to her husband. This is after she ate of it. She gave some to her uh, husband who was with her. I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. It wasn't that Eve was alone in the garden and that this uh, snake deceived her and then, you know, uh, Adam just gets this bad rap as, you know, it being Adam's sin. Adam was there. What should have happened in that moment? I wonder if you know. What should have happened, I think, in that moment is that Adam, who had the responsibility, should have yanked that snake out of the tree, crushed its head immediately. He was responsible. He was the one that was supposed to be loving and protecting and cultivating God's creation. He was the one that was supposed to be exercising that dominion in that place. And if he had been doing his job, no sin would have entered the world. But of course, that's not what happened. God's son did not believe what God had said. He was passive. 
He allowed distrust of God's word, do not eat of this tree, to enter their hearts. And he was responsible to resist that temptation. But ultimately, Adam gave in to temptation. And darkness entered the world and extended to the ends of the earth as we know. What happens here, and I want you to get this pattern because we're going to be using it throughout this sermon. We see that God's son Adam was to trust his word and to resist Satan's temptation, but his failure ensures darkness. God's son, supposed to believe God's word, he did not resist temptation, so darkness enters. And that's actually where we see them in Isaiah chapters 7, 8, and 9 that we've been covering over the last few weeks. God uh, doesn't just have a son anymore. He doesn't just have a daughter. That uh, man and woman, they had sons and daughters, and they had sons and daughters, and they had sons and daughters, and there was wickedness all over the earth, and God hit the reset button in the flood, and then there was uh, sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters, evil and wickedness. This shadow of darkness continued on until the time of a man named Abraham. Abraham comes along and God says, you're going to be a great people. You're going to be a nation. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing that he did to Adam. Adam, you're my son. Now he's saying it to a group of people. He's saying, "Um, Abraham, I'm going to make you my people. So uh, uh, Abraham actually has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has like uh, 12 really salty bunches of boys. They live for generations. They end up in this uh, captivity, this slavery in Egypt. And then their sons and daughters have sons and daughters, have sons and daughters. And now it's no longer a man and woman. It's a people. God has a people. God has a people, and they're led by the you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, out of the land of Egypt to be in God's place as God's people. They're, God literally puts this people, this people group, right in the middle of the world where all of the traffic and trade routes are coming in and through his people. They're supposed to be a light in the midst of the darkness. And in Isaiah, what we see is that this people has a problem. Last week, we talked about it. Go back and, and, and listen if you didn't already. But they are in the face of fear, needing to be faithful and what happens? Isaiah is telling him, you're not going to be faithful. Okay, so, so uh, hang with me here. God's people, God's people are set apart to look like their father, to obey his word, to represent them in the world. How do we know this? At the beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. God is saying this. Children have I reared and brought up. Children have I reared and brought up, but... They have rebelled against me. Israel has rebelled against him and followed false gods. In fact, we we know this from last week, uh, and, and we'll dive in why this is significant this week. There's already a kingdom, part of God's people named Israel, who's already separated out and gone to follow false gods. And there's this faithful remnant led by King Ahaz that's supposed to be remaining faithful to God's word, and they're called Judah. And they're the last little bit of people. They're supposed to remain faithful in the face of fear. But that's not what happens. And that's not what Isaiah says is going to happen. So literally from the north of Israel, they've already failed to obey God's word. They're even plotting to take over Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And as we saw last week, we see that Judah is now facing temptation. And they do not believe what God has said. Are you picking up on the pattern? God's man, his son, Adam, 
faced with temptation, fails in temptation, darkness follows. Now we've got God's people. They're commanded to be faithful. They're not faithful. And so darkness is beginning to close in. That light of the world, that that people, that God people that he put in the middle of the world, it was supposed to be telling the entire world, but from the north all the way to Jerusalem, we've got darkness falling. You're like, man, this is kind of heavy for Advent. Are we supposed to joy to the world? Like our stinking vision statement is a revival of joyful worship. Why is this so heavy? Why are we talking about this? And here's, here's why. It's because if we don't get the heaviness, if we don't see what's happening, if we don't see this uh, God's people not believing God's word, not resisting Satan's temptation, and then the failure actually advances darkness in God's son, in God's people, then we'll never understand what Jesus is about to tell us here in just a moment about these verses. That's why we're going there. This failure started in North Israel, in Zebulun, in Naphtali. Uh, that is the area that the Galilee was in. Uh, Judah and Jerusalem, we are now told, are in gloomy darkness. And that darkness extinguishes the light of the world as God's people disobey. And so here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. Did you know that your disobedience to God's word diminishes light in this world? It actually extends gloomy darkness? Okay, so that's an uncomfortable truth. What we see happening here with God's people is is that their unfaithfulness, their disobedience is actually shrinking God's testimony in this world in some way. Did you know that that's exactly what we do? In our faithfulness, light shines forth. In our disobedience, light, the light of the world, the, the testimony that's supposed to be there shrinks. And I'm wondering, not only did you know that, I'm wondering in what ways do you feel like Uh, your unfaithfulness, your disobedience, your unbelief in God's world, how is it shrinking the testimony that God wants to do in your life? That's the question that I want to ask this morning. What kind of Advent sermon is this? How is pointing out this people, this God's people, this failure to temptation and this darkness, how is it, how does it have anything to do with Christmas? Chapter 9, verse 1, what does it say here? There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. So the the message this morning is not one of darkness. We talked about that last week. We're setting up the context for this week. The message of this is hope. It's joy. There's something that's happening here. Isaiah has spent virtually the entirety of this book talking about how darkness is setting in and here in this word, but... There will be no gloom for who her, her who was in anguish. He's forecasting that there is going to be a time where there is no gloom, no darkness. That's what he's saying here. Now, you remember last week I said that we were kind of taking dessert to go. I don't know if you, I didn't say it that way, but that's what I meant. Well, there was this verse like in Christmas season that I kind of almost entirely skipped over where there was this sign that God was going to give. Do you remember what it was? The Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Call his name Emmanuel. We did talk about how uh, Emmanuel, God with us, meant one thing at that time. It meant judgment to those who were in disobedience. But it also meant something of hope. We saw the glint of light there last week. 
Matthew 1, verse 22 actually says that this has to do with Jesus. Do you know that? If you don't, write that down. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verses 22 says that this has to do with Jesus. It's not just this Old Testament prophecy about some young woman giving birth to a, a child that is going to act as both judgment and hope for Israel at that time. Matthew clarifies in the power of the Spirit that that verse had something to do with Jesus. And behold, at the beginning of Matthew, we see this young virgin woman named Mary giving birth, giving birth to this boy named Jesus. It's very clear that Matthew thinks that that child, that child Jesus, is God with us. That's the dessert that we took from last week into this week. The Holy Spirit has, uh, through Matthew, said that this verse points and pertains to Jesus. The angel of the Lord goes to Joseph and, and says, Joseph, don't leave. Don't leave Mary. You're a, you're, you're a good man. You're going to diver, divorce Mary quietly. You're going to leave her amidst all of this. But what's conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit, and it's a hope. And so what does Joseph do? He trusts the word of the Lord. And he's willing to go on. And then what he's doing is actually leading a family. After Jesus is, bur- uh, is born, Matthew 2, verses 23, says that, uh, that Joseph actually led his family down to Egypt to keep this boy safe. Then he comes back up. And, and, and what does it say there? It says he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. But, but Matthew says this about Nazareth, you're like, why are we in all of these like city names like Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee? What, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? Matthew thinks that it does. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Why is he being so specific? Why is, why is Matthew being so specific? He's about to do something really amazing in chapter 3 and 4. Flip over to Matthew uh, chapter 3. At the very end of Matthew chapter 3, what we're going to find there in verse 16 is this. Read it with me. And when Jesus was baptized, so this isn't when he's a child anymore, it's when he's a little bit older, but this is only a few chapters after all of these things are said about Jesus. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you pay attention here, you might see this pattern borne out again. This is my son with whom I'm Just like the first son, Adam. Just like the first son, Adam. The Holy Spirit is saying, this is my son. The Holy Spirit is falling. I, I imagine light actually coming down and resting like a dove on Jesus. The Holy Spirit is anointing Jesus. He's filling Jesus. And then if that's not enough, the voice of the Father is speaking over Jesus. And what is he saying about this young man? This is my son. This is my son. Adam was my son. Israel was my people. But this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In chapter 4, just the very next verses. So if you'll just uh, switch over to verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came to him. Okay, I'm skipping a few verses in there, but I just want you to get the taste of this. The tempter came to him, and the devil took him to a very high place, a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. This beloved son ends up being tempted. Not, not once, three times he is tempted by Satan. And just like a stick that might be flexed and, and, and tempted in great ways but never breaks, Jesus is the one who is tempted by Satan and does not break. Matthew is actually giving us a pattern here. He's saying, hey, you remember all of these patterns throughout Scripture. This is the new one. This is the real Adam. This is the beloved son. This is the one who is tempted and does not break. Finally, in verse 13, there in Matthew chapter 4, he says this, and he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Does that sound familiar? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of Galilees, that's where he's from. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in that region, in the shadow of death, on them has light dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching. He began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven, of heaven is at hand. I, I want to go back and read where we've come from here in Isaiah chapter uh, 9. It says this, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness walked past tense. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What is Matthew saying about this set of verses in chapter 9 of Isaiah? What is he saying? He's saying it's Jesus. Jesus is the one fulfilling these prophecies. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Jesus is the righteous uh, resister of Satan. Jesus is the great light to the nations that shine on you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's here. He's here. God's son, Adam, God's son, Adam, was told to trust God's word. He was told to resist Satan's temptation, but that failure of his covered the world in darkness. God's people, Israel, were, tr were to trust in God's word and to resist temptation, to fear and put their hope in Assyria, but their failure forced darkness to descend and shrink back down into this tiny remnant of Isaiah and his followers. But here in Isaiah chapter, one, or chapter 9, verse 1, it says, there will be no gloom. There will be no gloom for whom? Who will there be no gloom for? Why will there be no gloom for them? For the people who walked in darkness. That's who. Because they have seen a great light, a bright light. 
There's not going to be any gloom when this light shows up. For those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Here's what we've got to understand about this great light and this shining light. The light of Emmanuel is the beloved son. It's the right resistor of Satan, and it is the redeeming dawn. The light of Emmanuel is the redeeming dawn. If you're in the midst of a dark season right now, if you're in the midst of a gloomy season, let us remember that Jesus is the dawn. He is the light, he is the great light, and he shines on us. Now, it might be easy with all of this Adam and Israel talk to think, okay, I get it. Okay, Jesus is the light. I've heard that before. I've sung that before. I know that. Jesus is the light. Do we really? Have you ever really sat down to think about Jesus is light? That's an interesting concept. Have you spent much time thinking Jesus is light and how that actually applies to you in your circumstances? Have you thought about it? Like, not just sung it, not just heard it. We can all say Jesus is light, but what does that mean? Well, what we need to realize is is that the the gospel is that Isaiah was written to us too. Now, before any big alarm bells go off, yes, it was written to the people of the time, but it is very obvious to Matthew, at least, that Isaiah was written to us to tell us about this pattern that happens through creation that Jesus shines light into stops once and for all and gives us a great hope. That's what he thinks. That's what I think. Isaiah is written for us too. The message of the book of Isaiah is both judgment and hope. It is gloominess and darkness and what the gospel needs to communicate to us this morning is that there is no gloom for those who uh, walked in darkness or those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. Why? Because you have seen the dawn, the great light, and his name is Emmanuel. Jesus has shined his light on us. And it's not just Adam or Israel who's walked in darkness. You have. I have. I I want for us to be realistic about this. Like, actually take a second to, like, wake up. Let our spirits awaken and go, it's not just Adam who walked in darkness, who ushered in darkness. It's not just Israel who just seems on this constant wave of dipping into disobedience and discipline and then through obedience, they're just always on this. It's us too. We have dipped our toe into darkness and decided to plunge ourselves into it. It's not just Adam or Israel who's walked in darkness. We have, and that we, rese- we deserve the same judgment that Isaiah is telling Israel and Judah that they deserve. We are the ones who have walked out in darkness, the darkness of failure to believe God's word to us. Failure to resist temptation. I wonder this morning what pattern of sin, what what cycle of failure to resist temptation leaves you the most hopeless? That's a question for you, okay? What pattern of sin, what cycle of like non-resistance to temptation 
brings you most into darkness. Maybe it's the things that you look at on a computer. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's just like, it feels impossible to break that cycle of darkness. I I know what that's felt like. I know that pattern of sin. I know how hopeless it can seem. I know how dark it can feel. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe when I ask, hey, what pattern of sin, what non-resistance has led to gloominess in your life? And you go, I know what it is. It's lust. Maybe that's not it for you. Maybe something else is on the screen. It's somebody else's perfect Instagram life. It's the TikTok, you know, dance videos, though, looking at our group. I'm not seeing a whole lot of that. Maybe. Maybe I just don't know. But maybe it's just there's just something about the online life that you look at and you go, I want that. I envy that. I see that person's giftings. I see what those people have, and I want it. I need it. But you know at the same time it's not yours, and it's just grinding on your soul. Maybe that's the darkness for you. Maybe it's, to, it's a really good thing, like the desire to live a life of significance. I, I haven't really ever met, too, I have not met too many people that uh, would tell you today, I am just fine living like a life that does not matter. Not, not met too many of those people. Most people really desire to live a life of significance. I, I see this particular pattern, this sin pattern, happen a lot in guys. I mean, I'm sure that it happens for ladies too, but like, I think that there's something just inside of men that's like, I want to conquer, I want to be uh, able to reach this height, I want to do this thing, I, I just, I've got it in me, I can do it, I know that I can, but a cycle of laziness and like non-conscientiousness and indiscipline uh, keeps you in a place where you have all of these high aspirations, but laziness keeps you in a cycle of like, feeling like you're nothing. You're just not significant. You're not doing anything of any purpose and any value. Maybe that's the cycle of sin that keeps you in a gloomy darkness, and you're depressed because of it. You're just like, my life is going nowhere. I had all of these high hopes and dreams, and now I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Is that the cycle? Is that the temptation, that laziness that you're falling into? I wonder, the last one here, I wonder maybe if it's the subtle attitude that you have towards your spouse, that like just the like coolness, the like uh, uh, glancing comments, the mean-spiritedness, the unkindness that you have towards your wife, I wonder if that actually goes a lot deeper. I wonder if it goes into a cycle of deeply rooted contempt for your spouse. I know a lot of people that have contempt for their spouse, a lot. I've seen that acid eat away at the soul. I've seen it. And, and, and here's maybe even the worst part about it. It's not just that contempt. It's that self-hate because you're just like, man, I just cannot stand my spouse. Maybe you'd never say that out loud. You'd never say it to them. You wouldn't say it to your best friend, but you're just like, mm, they get under my skin. And the cycle is that you go, I really hate them, but I hate even more myself that I hate them. Maybe that's the cycle. I don't know what it is for you. But what I do know is that there's a pattern and cycle of sin in each one of us that leads us into gloomy darkness.
that needs light. That's what I know. I know that. And for us, we need to see that word, but. We need to like focus in like a laser beam on that word, that word at the beginning of chapter nine, and it says, but no gloom, no doom for you because the light of Emmanuel is a great light and it's shining on you. Like, this isn't an act, guys. The light of God is shining on you through his son, Jesus. The light of Emmanuel literally wants to take the darkest parts of your heart and it wants to illuminate them. Like, wants to like, scatter the darkness in an instant. That's what the light of Christ wants for you. That's what I believe. I don't just believe that there are cycles of sin that are really hard to like crush. I believe that all the more, I mean, like so much that he was willing to endure death wants to shine light on you. That's what I really believe. I, I believe it during the Christmas season. I, I, it's not just the, this is not the example of Christmas that I want to give. I mean, like driving down the street and seeing just bright, shining lights and everything. Yeah, it's so warming. It's like, man, it is cheerful to see everybody get unified and together and put lights on their house. That's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus, the light of the world descending into darkness so that you might be shined on. That's what I'm talking about. That's what he wants. For those who have seen the great light of Jesus, there is no gloom, no death for you anymore. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus is the light and that that light wants to transform you. You cannot live the same way anymore. If we've seen this redeeming dawn, this great light has shone on us, how then are we to live? Okay, I want for us to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. And we're not going to spend much time here, but I just have to let you, I have to have you see it. Goodness gracious, I should have marked this. I'll tell you one thing that I'm really, really bad at that I've discovered recently, uh, whiteboards. But not just whiteboards, whiteboards in front of people, because I am so stream of consciousness driven, I can't do anything in front of people. All right, there we are. Goodness gracious. Should have marked it. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Let no one deceive you. Does that sound familiar? Okay, there's a deceiver out there. There's a tempter out there. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Does it come upon God's sons, God's daughters, God's people anymore? There's no gloom, but it does come upon some. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness. Now, does it say you were in the darkness? I want to make a transition here. It's a subtle one, but it's a real one, okay? Does it say that you were in darkness or does it say you were darkness? But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Do you remember those ladies I was talking about? The light is coming. All they wanted to do was be seen. All that they wanted to do was be seen. In the light of Christ, you're seen. Look. Look here. You want to be seen by God? When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. God sees you. Beloved, look at me. Look at me. God sees you. When you are in the light as he is in the light, you are light. You become light. And God sees you because you're in the light. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Is there anything more hopeful that you could like, want during this Christmas season than to have the light of Christ shine on you? I mean, I had all of these like, uh, uh, points that I wanted to make out of this. What I'm going to do instead, I'm going to let you go back to that set of verses. I'm going to let you read, and I want you to ask those sets of verses, what does this say to me? What, what are the commands that could come out? How would I live in obedience for this? But instead of going through those, like in this time, maybe you do that as a discipleship group this week, okay? Just go through, uh, you know, go through Ephesians 5, 6 through 14 and ask, what lie am I believing that needs to encounter the truth of Ephesians? But right now, all I want to do is say this over this body. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine his light on you. Let's pray. God and Father, you are the God of lights. You are the God of the heavenly lights. You placed every star in this entire universe. You shine light from everywhere. You gave us a sun that rises and sets on us every day and warms us and keeps us alive. But all the more, you did not just set stars in the sky or a sun in, our, uh, in, in, in uh, us in the orbit of the sun. You actually sent your sun that we might be warmed by his light, that his great light might shine on us. God and Father, if there's one thing that comes out of today, for me, Father, for me, for the people of City Church, Father, would we believe that your son is light and that he shines on us? God and Father, just help us to believe it. Help me to believe it, God. Let the light of your son shine on us, Father. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine his light on you. Father, we believe it this morning, and we pray in his holy name. Amen. So what I want you to do is arise, O sleeper. I want you to stand up. And what we are going to do this morning is sing songs.